Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to, hey, Great Shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast, a Cracked Rackets and Tennis Channel Podcast Network production. My name is Alex Gruskin. On today's show, we continue our countdown of our top 10 Division I women's college tennis teams heading into the 2023 season. Of course, if you missed our episodes, breaking down our preseason number 10 through 7 teams, all you got to do, scroll up on your Great Shot podcast feed. You'll see each of our first four women's previews alongside of our first four men's previews as well. Of course, we've got three weeks, six episodes to go for both the men and the women. And on today's show, we get into one of the perennial most interesting teams in Division I women's college tennis. If there's any definition of a blue blood in our sport, you would have to say that definition looks an awful lot like the Stanford women's tennis program. 21 national championships for the Stanford Cardinal heading into 2023. Of course, this season, they begin as our number six preseason team. And of course, on today's show, we want to recap Stanford's 2022, talk about each of the pieces they bring back as long as as well as, excuse me, the new additions that promise to make the Cardinal pop this season. And of course, if we plan on breaking down a number their Division I women's college tennis team, you know I better have some help on the show to help me do just that. Thankfully, I do once again as joining me, as he always does, is a returning champion of returning champion here on our Crack Racket shows. Of course, you know him best as the founder of the No Ad, No Problem blog, which quickly turned into the award-winning No Ad, No Problem podcast. Of course, he will be a constant feature of our Crack Rackets coverage, including as co-host of our weekly college episodes of The Deciding Point. Welcome back onto the podcast, our dear friend and Crack Rackets contributor, John J. Parsons. Jay, hey, great shot. Welcome back to the show. It is crazy to say we've reached number six Stanford, but you ready to power through another week, my friend? I'm very ready. I would love to know what awards I'm winning on my podcast. Is that just the the two-time appearance from Alex Bruskin Award? Yeah, the award for being best able to tolerate me in multiple doses. I think that's an award-winning performance, certainly. Fair enough. Across multiple podcast platforms. Yeah, exactly. If you go two pods wide with me, again, Rothman never made it to the Cracked Interviews podcast. Rothman never made it to the Mini Break podcast. He was GSP <laughs> and done. We were the quick breakup tour before we could expand multiple shows wide. So I appreciate you having me on your show. Obviously, we were joined by my dear friend over at Tennis Channel, Michael Haston, to talk about the future of all things college tennis, college tennis streaming. So if that is a topic that interests you be sure to go check out the No Ad, No Problem blog I'll, uh, podcast as well. I'll say this too, Jay. 
I got some coaches texting me. A lot of people were curious to hear your thoughts on the future of college tennis broadcasting. I hope the response has been as positive to you as it has been towards me. I'm still waiting for more texts. You know, <laughs> um, my DMs are open. People know where to find me. Uh, but yeah, the reception has been really good. I think people were really curious about the topic. It was timely. Uh, there were a few tweets in the ether about kind of questions about what will happen with 2023 at Lake Nona. So, uh, you know, we were uh, our podcast was very prescient, I would say. Uh, but yeah, I think the reception was good. Um, look, it's always a topic that will get um, get listens. So I'm excited to have put that out there. Excited to continue the conversation about what we can do to get things on TV. Yeah, it's first of all, that's just good producing, knowing what topic to hit for the listeners. Do you think you were part of the impetus for the Roland Thornquist tweet? That uh, the fact that if we can't get college tennis on broadcasting, nothing else matters, that 300K price tag. Do you think that was a direct inspiration of the No Ad, No Problem pod? Are you inspiring tweets now from coaches, Jay? No, I think there were other activities and other (laughs) breaking news happening uh, that inspired that tweet. I will say, though, I was happy to have known that that was occurring, hence scheduling the pod. The timing happened to work out. Yeah, I will say this. I am hearing different reporting, I think, than you guys are. And obviously, I don't want to step on anyone's toes. I don't want to betray any confidence. The idea that the NCAA tournament will not be streamed in 2023, I will say this. My reporting as of this moment rejects that premise. And that's not suggesting that it's going to be a cracked racket specific stream. Now, that could very much be in the ether later on, but... I am fairly certain that there will be, I don't want to say a linear network, but there will be an official broadcasting body, and I'm going to remove ourselves from that equation for a moment. I think there will be a non-Cracked Rackets broadcast partner. It seems to be uh, for the NCAA tournament. Uh, there will be an additional partner outside of us, I should say. You, you're making a face, and obviously what we saw on Twitter over the course of the past weekend, your reporting suggests otherwise. My reporting suggests it will not be on TV. Okay. Define TV for me. Linear broadcast. So that means ESPN or ESPN2? No. No, no. I, or, or a network of those. So if it's Watch ESPN, if it's the ESPN streaming service, that does not count as li- linear TV to you? Correct. Okay. So, so, that, so, mm-hmm. so go on, please. So my reporting is that it will not be on Tennis Channel. Okay. And... That's sort of where the buck stops from a a TV-specific standpoint. I do not have reporting, like you seem to, about the what I would consider the the streaming aspect of this. So let me ask you this then, and I would recommend to everyone, go check out the No Ad, No Problem uh, podcast. I keep calling it a blog. I apologize, Jay. It's a blog first. We've evolved. Exactly. uh, Some have its die hard. Go check out the No Ad, No Problem blog slash podcast. And I know know, that one was intentional. I promise. But the reason I bring all this up is we just talked about this with Michael Haston. But uh, since we've moved podcast platforms, I want to offer you the chance to truly uh, tee off on this question Streaming on ESPN or uh, TC Plus, some sort of linear tangent, I suppose, network or opportunity broadcast for the NCAA tournament. Is that acceptable to you? Or for you, does it have to be the linear network of ESPN, ESPN2, CBS Sports, something where you turn on your TV and you don't have to go that extra step to find it? Does it have to be that in your mind for things to be considered progress? 
Well, that's a different question, right? Sure. Progress versus does it have to be acceptability? I think, yeah, acceptable, right? So, you know, if we if this was to be streamed, right, on let's say you know ESPN Plus, then okay, great. Now we're in the conversation with other sports, right? But that's sort of the baseline, right? Twenty five of the thirty NCAA championships were either on TV or streamed by ESPN. Tennis is one of those five outliers, so. If we get streamed by ESPN, okay, great. Now we're one of you know those 25, it's 26 now, which is helpful. But no, I do think it is of critical importance that streaming is a complement to the main TV broadcast. Yeah, I, I think that's well said. I am I am willing to accept simple streaming still. I think that is still constitutes progress compared to where college tennis has been over the course of the past decade. Now, again, progress, incremental progress is not necessarily always something that needs to be celebrated, particularly given the advances in accessibility to streaming at just about every facility across the country over the past 10 years. It should be easier to host a college tennis broadcast than it was back in 2010, than it was back in 2000. That said... Again, what are the linear television NCAA broadcasts right now? Obviously, you've got basketball. You've got football. Softball makes an appearance now on ESPN, ESPN2. Baseball is in that and competition ABC. as well. Hockey would be the – yeah, ABC as well. Hockey would be the fifth sport I turn to. I can't think of anything else that is con- – I mean, I know lacrosse gets their absolute championship on there. Do you have the list for me, Jay? I mean, it's available on the No Ad, No Problem blog when I wrote about this a few weeks ago. Um, I mean, other ones that come to mind, you mentioned lacrosse, soccer. um, uh, I don't know if I think field hockey. um, I know for sure gymnastics that was on primetime ABC. So, yeah, the list is available on the No Ad, No Problem blog. It has every sport and um, whether it was streamed on TV or if it was uh, aired on TV or streamed, and if it was streamed, what platform it was streamed on, like ESPN2, watch ESPN, all of that. Yeah, it's a step in the right direction. Obviously, I think we have had this discussion before about what's the best way to broadcast a college tennis match, what are the features of a college tennis match that – from a production standpoint, have to be covered one court versus having cameras available on all six courts. Again, this is a topic we expanded on quite greatly on the re- latest edition of the No Ad, No Problem podcast. So I highly recommend that episode. John Parsons, myself, Michael Haston, to everyone. But yeah, I mean, now that you bring up the countless examples, now that I'm thinking in my head, like, did I see water polo flash on ESPN2 for like the slightest of moments in December? I'll go through it now if you want All right, me to. please do. I filibustered long enough. Okay, so sports that were on TV and streaming. Women's gymnastics, men's basketball, football, wrestling, women's basketball, women's lacrosse, softball, outdoor track and field, baseball, women's volleyball, men's hockey, men's volleyball, beach volleyball, cross country, women's soccer, men's soccer, men's lacrosse, women's hockey, women's water polo. All of those were either on ABC, TBS, ESPN, ESPN2, or ESPNU. Golf was also on Golf Channel. So ESPNU is where I push back because, and I do think a lot of those were on ESPNU, and I would say, I think, uh, now we don't have ESPNU in our I would not, I would not say a lot. Sorry, I would not say a lot. So how many of those were just ESPNU? One, two, three, 
six. That's healthy. I mean, that. Uh, I guess still though. What? So that leaves how many were on ESPN, ESPN two, TBS, or ABC? Good math here. As Jay does some counting, I wish you all could see his head bobbing <laughs> as he's counting here. It's like around thirteen. I don't know, uh, plus or minus one. All right. Slowly but surely, I've talked myself into college tennis needs to get on that list. No doubt about that. And that, well, you should that be in streaming, that. You should what? be in that camp. Period. Yeah, it's that streaming's no longer enough. But I will say this again to get a consistent streaming partner, and I would love it to be Cracked Rackets. And I always am hesitant to have these conversations because I know the work being done and that needs to be continued to be emphasized. If you think at the ITA headquarters, they're like, no, we don't want to be on TV. We are making sure we aren't one of those sports on ESPN. You're foolish if that's what you're telling yourself and you're just lying to yourself because of course that's what the ITA is striving to accomplish. All I'll say is don't think the door is shut quite yet on 2023. I suppose that would be my final tidbit to add to this conversation after all the chatter we saw over the weekend. I give the final word though to you, Jay. (laughs) Great. We'll wait and see. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Nothing more to add. I will, I will just say uh, it will be very disheartening uh, if it is true that it is not on TV, given that it is at Lake Nona, given that all three divisions are uh, there Uh, at Lake Nona where there's a tennis channel facility on site. Um, It'll be really disappointing. Yeah. I mean, we saw in 2021, Lake Nona is certainly capable, has the capacity to put on a high level broadcast. So hopefully we'll be able to have that broadcast consistently. And again, I love it live, but even if it's not live, if you want to show it the weekend after the French Open, because the NCAA tournament French Open are always on dates that intersect. Let's just make sure. They're not. They're not. I have to correct you on that. So the the team tournament starts starts before qualifying. The French Open main draw starts May 28th. And the NCAA tournament, I imagine, ends the Monday before. Exactly. It's always like the 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th, 21st, around And then you have the individuals going all the way through? Sure. Yeah, you have the individuals go for another week. Okay. That's what I like to hear then. All the dates are lining up, folks. This is the year. You hear that knocking on wood in the background. This is the year, my friend. We make it happen. But – with all that said, you want to hear more on the future of college tennis broadcasting, how we get NCAAs onto a linear platform moving forward again. No ad, no problem. Blog and podcast, the place for you, courtesy of our dear friend John Parsons. That said, Jay, the reason I had you here today, not only to have that fun conversation. And by the way, some of you are thinking, where's the learner Chen talk? We're bringing a Kalamazoo Boys 18s champion into college tennis, and you guys haven't addressed it in the first five minutes. Well, rest is sure Chris Hallioris and I will address it in full tomorrow. The same question I'm going to ask him though, Jay, I want to let you chime in on quickly. With the addition of Lerner, USC, Pac-12 favorites, yes or no? Yes. Unequivocal or is it still pretty close in your mind? I don't think it's that close, right? I think USC was, uh, you know, in the top 10. The concern for them was just how thin they were um, in terms of people on the roster, Right. This makes them at least seven deep um, and their their five and six are going to be far and away better than what Stanford puts out on the court this year. Um, if Stanford was your number two, then I think this pretty firmly cements uh, USC, even if Stanford sweeps at one, two and three, which is possible. I just think the depth that this provides them right moves people like Bradley Fry down to four, maybe. Um, so I think that this is a really good. Really good get for USC. 
Yeah. That one of Peter, Woj, Brad, or Lerner is playing five singles is just a coup. Like, you feel yeah. really good about that number five. Son. By the way, if that puts Colby at six, you feel even six, yeah. better about that number six spot and the depth now provided for the USC Trojans. And you mentioned it, and we're going to talk about this with Chris tomorrow. They had four pieces that you feel like would fit really well in the bottom half of the lineup. They needed another blue chipper at the top. And we know Destonic might be the bluest of the chips in men's college tennis this season. He'll be in that the guy conversation. He was in it last year. He's going to very much be in it again this season. But all that burden, all that weight that perhaps he was feeling on his shoulders, just like... You know, Lerner's only 120 pounds, but 120 pounds of it now off of Dostinick's shoulders as you bring in such a high-level recruit. So, yes, we will get into the weeds of how that impacts USC, how that impacts the Pac-12, how that might impact our preseason top 10 rankings, where we might move USC accordingly. I'll say this, coaches, looking at you, Pepperdine, looking at you, USC, I texted this to Basie yesterday, so I don't mind saying it here on the show. You're not allowed to get mad at us at a preseason top 10 ranking and then announce a recruiting decision like this this late in December. So if you, from now on, head coaches, I love you, but if you send me a a, a text mad about your position in the rankings and then after that show is released, it turns out the reason you're mad about that position is that you didn't confirm an additional player was coming to your roster, I'm just going to dock you another spot down the rankings like that's just going to have a punishment system here because the opportunities were there obviously I say that in jest but it's just a reminder folks we're still waiting on the Alcaraz to Wake Forest announcement there are still a few more December surprises always in store right Jay I think they're getting more and more over the years I think particularly as rosters become more fluid you have things like the transfer portal people graduating in December starting in January just deciding to start in January period you just get a lot more of this uh it's becoming super tough to keep track of i know for coaches i mean just roster management alone is a challenge so fan management is also a challenge just to keep track of who's coming and when they're coming i'm always fascinated to know also it's like how much does a january starting scholarship actually account for so let's say they are a full scholarship player but so it's just it's just officially it's straight up half the amount like we know that for certain from a money perspective? I'm pretty sure Ethan explained this on one of our episodes and it, it, we were trying to do the math on how Tennessee had so many guys <laughs> on their roster. And it was like, well, Monday being off yeah. for the semester helps. Uh, so I, yeah, I think it's half. I think you're right. And I, I, I believe so, but like, I just never know. Yeah, I, I would love to just ask a team to open up their checkbook and you can just blank out the names for us and say, this is how this player gained this scholarship and this is how it, uh, it grew over the course of the four years or they became an even fuller player after their All-American season this year when it was like, hey, we reward this guy. I just want to see how any coach balances their books because that I'll keep a secret, coaches. I promise. If you show me the books, I'll keep that a secret. This is very inside baseball of like working in tech, but you working in tech, you get like restricted stock options, yeah. right? And they vest quarterly. And it's like, what's the scholarship vest? It's like yeah. a one year cliff. And it's like, if you're still there, then you get your money. And it, in a year you get bonuses, you get more money the next year. It's very 
very similar to that. Preach, my dear friend. Preach. By the way, last tangent since we're just going all in here. I was home this past weekend for a wedding. Shout out Cal Kaufman, Jackie Meyer. Not shout out to religion. Religion gets an anti-shout out. Some of the things they say in these conservative, traditional religious ceremonies where it's just like, and you as the wife, be directly supplicant to the husband and you must kiss his feet at all time. And by the way, husband, all you got to do is be loyal to Jesus Christ. And that's your only job. I'm just like, sometimes I'm like, what year is this? Like, these are the things. It's like the wife must obey. She must have dinner ready. She must do all of these things. Husband, just show up, be on time and you're doing your job. And I'm like, again, Is it not 2022? Like, what are we doing here? Again, there's a little editorializing, I suppose, for all of you listeners. Hey, traditional religion, if it's for you, good for you, I suppose. The other thing about being home, though, is inevitably, Jay, I'm around some of my tennis friends, and I dip my toes back onto the tennis court. Mm. I can't walk today. Like, I think I've officially (laughs) hit the line of the quality of tennis yesterday. Shout out Blake Ahadi, my former club tennis teammate. The quality was exceptional. And he and I were college roommates. We have a look at one another where it's just like, you, you know it's going to get real. It's going down anytime we step on the court together because it's valuable time. It's a good matchup, two counterpunchers, all these things. Neither of us are willing to quit. Neither of us wants to lose. Neither of us can walk here on Monday. Like, it's just, it's devastating, Jay. And I'm curious, uh, 27 years old now, the recovery process is just brutal for me. Tell me I'm not alone here. It just gets worse. (laughs) (laughs) Like today is the best you'll ever feel. I'm sorry to tell you. Oh, don't tell me that. That's (laughs) devastating. I started stretching afterward. We went to get some food and I'm like stretching in line. And the person at the register is like, are you okay, sir? Like you look like you are in pain. And I was like, I don't think I have a back. I was like, it's gone. Like it's all deceased. It's over for me. So shout out to all you college athletes. Here's my recommendation. If you're listening to the show, Never stop because the moment you stop, that's when you lose it. And the moment you lose it, you just don't get it back. I'd show you all the blood blisters I have on my hands right now, Jay. It's disgusting, but God, do I also love this sport. And with that said, Jay, you know what I really love is college tennis. And we are getting closer and closer to the start of the college tennis season. Of course, before we get there, our goal here at Cracked Rackets to preview each of our top 10 men's and women's preseason teams heading into the Division I season. Of course, on today's show, we pick up our previewing with a conversation about the number six Stanford Cardinal. Of course, Stanford 21-time now. National champions, Jay. Let me just say that again. 21-time national champions, obviously the most in Division I women's college tennis history. Now, you look for the Cardinal of late, and we mentioned this on Friday in our men's equivalent of, or the men's Stanford, I should say, preview edition of this show. Stanford has had it a lot harder these last two and a half years than just about any other program in the country. Now, All of us have had to deal with the pandemic and the uh, subsequent guidelines that, that came along with them. But being in Northern California, being in Palo Alto, being one of the more restrictive schools as it came to what you could or could not do, it's been a really weird run. For Stanford, obviously, these past two and a half years, you go back to 2021, where they reached the round of 32, are eliminated by Pepperdine. That was basically the only time in Stanford women's tennis history this team did not make at least the round of 16 at the NCAA tournament. Of course, 
You've also had a wave. Will they play? Won't they play? Are you coming back? Are they not coming back? It's just been a whirlwind sort of experience for the Stanford Cardinal. Of course, all of that, I suppose, comes to a peak last year as this team, 19-6 and overall throughout the course of the year, 7-2 and in conference play. Now, ultimately, they do peak. Come the end of the season, they win the Pac-12 Tournament Championship, reach the round of 16 before getting knocked out 4-1 by Oklahoma at Oklahoma in a match that I think was a little bit closer, perhaps, than that 4-1 scoreline seems to indicate, and we can get into that a little bit later, of course. Last but certainly not least, when recapping Stanford's 2022 season, I do think it's important to note that, of course, they ended the year with an NCAA finalist. Of course, it came on the singles court in the ver- uh, in the form of freshman phenom Connie Ma Ma, ultimately the NCAA singles finalist before she is knocked out by champion Peyton Stearns. With all of that said, Jay, Stanford Cardinal 2022, 19-6 overall, 7-2 in Pac-12 play, Pac-12 tournament champions, Connie Ma, NCAA singles finalist, NCAA round of 16. So I ask you, overperform? underperform, I should say exceed expectations, under uh, overperform, or did they get it just right last year? Well, it depends on with what lens you look at it, right? <laughs> because to put into perspective what you were talking about of this program's dominance, there's been 40 NCAA seasons when the NCAA era in women's tennis started in 1982. How many of those years has Stanford women's tennis made the semifinal or better? Of the 42? Of the 40. Of the 40. I'm going to go with 31. 34. Wow. (laughs) How many times have they lost in the round of 16 or earlier? Twice. Just three times. Wow. Yeah, that's the the gold standard, my friend. Yes. So... I, and it, those two times happened, two of those times happened in the past two years, right? Last year was the first time ever they fell in the round of 32. 2022 was the second time they had lost in the round of 16 ever. They were 76% win percentage at 19 and 6. How many seasons have they had a worse winning percentage than that in the NCAA era? Twice. Twice. Yeah, that's 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 crazy. I mean, first of all, that just speaks to how exceptional this Stanford team has been and how, again, there are teams who would trade their past 10 years for one 19 and six, seven and two conference tournament sort of run type season to have one year of a Connie Ma in their program, let alone the history of success Stanford has had. So you're right, judging by Stanford standards, the COVID era has been an absolute disaster. Now, judging by normal people's standards, judging by the perception we should have given what we saw on their roster, given what we know about their circumstances, Jay, then I'll ask you again, exceed expectations, underperform just right. I think you go just right. I do think it was a step forward from 2021, which was just a really, really rough season for them. You know, they win the Pac-12. That's, you know, that is, that's a, a good way to end it's that season. It's the starting point. It has to be for that. Exactly. Right? And you and you start with three freshmen, right? You have two freshmen at one and two. You have um, Connie Mott, number one, who we've talked about. Sasha Yepovnova at number two. Valencia Shu at five. So to do that with freshmen, you feel like things are 
back on the right track. They were relevant in the national conversation, Connie Ma making the final. So net net, I think it's a just right performance. It's so funny because you mentioned the disaster that was 2021. Do you know they went 15 and 5 in 2021? Yeah, 75% win. 8-2 in conference play. Their losses 4-3 to Pepperdine, uh, 4-1, 4-2 to Pepperdine, 4-1 to Cal, 7-0 at UCLA is tough. And then the one we'll never forget is the at Oregon 4-3 loss. That was the real outlier that shocked all of us. But like... That's hilarious that over the past two years, this team, 34 to 11. And like, again, it's people are asking, is it time for Coach Farood to step? Not actually asking that, but it's like, again, is it like, has Coach Farood lost it? Like, is the thread just broken for this Stanford team? Has the rest of the college tennis universe caught up to them? And it's interesting to bring that up because certainly when you look last year, I mean, North Carolina wins, what, their third consecutive national indoors, and I think they have taken the mantle of perennial frontrunner from Stanford that Stanford occupied throughout our lifetimes in college tennis, right, Jay? Like, the from 2008 to 2008, 2020, all due respect to every other team in the country— Things ran through Stanford, and it was like, is this going to be a Stanford year, or is this a year where maybe someone can upset them? I don't think that's the dichotomy we live in anymore. I don't think they're the only blue blood in women's college tennis. I do think some other programs have caught up, but they're still elite of the elite, right? Yeah, absolutely, and I think we forget. I mean, they won the 2019 NCAA title. There was no (laughs) tournament in 2020. And now we're talking about kind of COVID derailing a lot of the the program's success. So yeah, they are, I mean, they've won half, if not over half of the NCAA titles, right? They have been, they won. They've won 21 of the 40. Yeah, yeah, well, technically 20 of the 40, because one of those is a pre-NCAA era. But but yeah, sorry, only 20 of the 40. Yes. (laughs) I think the big thing for me was when they went on the road to Oklahoma in that super regional, you know, this was Oklahoma's first big test uh, without Shanta. Right. And, you know, this was a Stanford team that seemed pretty overwhelmed by the occasion and the environment. And so many of these Stanford teams of years past have just had a sense of belief, right? That we're going to do this because we are Stanford. doesn't matter if we're seated one or seated 15. This is a program. It runs deep in us. And now you wonder if some of that thread has been broken with some, with these past few years. So that's exactly what I was alluding to. The aura of invincibility that surrounds Stanford, that has vanished. That no longer exists. If I were to ask you what's the best program right now in college tennis, would you say Stanford? Would you say North Carolina? Would you say Texas? Which program do you think is best positioned to succeed over the next 10 years? Those are very different questions. Okay, well, is the answer unequivocally Stanford anymore? If the question is what program is best positioned to succeed over the next 10 years, I do not think the answer is Stanford. I do not think it is the answer is Stanford because of a lot Everything. of the... A- Yeah, and a lot of it comes down to the ability for Stanford to keep up pace with the way overall athletics is moving, right? They're unable to bring in, you know, January uh, people right now, right? Are they unable to or they just don't? Well, yeah, it's the same thing. It's the same thing. They just don't do that. They like, well, it's like their administration doesn't do it. So they, they they don't do it, right? Who's 
transferring in. Oh, just not- for the record, the, I know what you meant. I just wanted to clarify for the listeners. They can yeah. do it. They just elect not to. Yes, there's nothing outside yes, of yes, their yes. own self restrictions. Um, so that's a part of it. And then transfers, right? I mean, who are you? Who is transferring into Stanford as an undergrad? Uh, almost nobody. The only way you're getting in is if you're going to a grad school that you probably need to get in on your own, right? There's not going to be much help that Stanford's going to be able to provide there, unlike many of these other schools who, with all due respect, like it's a little bit more straightforward to get them into these grad programs. So look, modern athletics has taken uh, a, a turn over the last few years in a way that definitely does not advantage Stanford. Yeah, I will say this. Stanford athletics, I think figuratively, is still often something everyone strives for, right? And maybe this describes the background you come from. I'll tell you this. Amongst all of my friends, the conversation has always been in life. Congratulations. You're now the best at your sport. Where do you want to go to play your four years of college? The answer, my entire childhood from everyone I surrounded, and let's be clear, I went to Detroit Country Day, so that probably has to factor in a little bit, but the answer was always Stanford, right? It's like, why would you not go to Stanford? You get the West Coast, you get the best academics, you get Pac-12 athletics, so you're still in the Power Five. It's just more complicated than that now. And particularly so many pro players or so many high-level players who have pro aspirations, maybe they aren't the serious students who want to go spend time at Stanford, spend the not only the, you know, Connie Ma is the exception in that she happens to be really good at tennis. But if yeah. you ask the Ma parents, why does Connie go to Stanford? It's for school. It's She is a student, then an athlete in yeah. that order. And I think there are a lot of, players of similar caliber who maybe wouldn't say that particularly, or that wouldn't be their first inclination of how to answer that question, I suppose. Yeah, it's just recruiting is also really competitive now. It's really hard. They're everywhere you look. Again, they're the obvious answers, right? Audra Cohen, you know, is going to be working on that recruiting trail to try and get you at all times. At the same way, like, I think even um, blanking on names here, but like you, it's just you have high level players everywhere at, at every program, whether it's Wisconsin, they're going to come after you hard and make a really good pitch now as well. Obviously, Chris Young, Oklahoma State, he's not going anywhere either, and he's going to bring you into that Greenwood Tennis Center. And boy, are you going to enjoy it? I, I just do wonder if, like, again, so they're at 20 now. How it took them. Um, 40 years to win the first 20, how long is it going to take them to win the next five? Like, I think their next five could take an additional 20 years or 40 years because I just think the direction we're heading is competitive. Anyways, this is quite the tangent to veer away from 2022, but I I do think this is a fascinating moment for Stanford, Jay. You're, You're the Stanford scholar on the pod, our West Coast correspondent. I'm not off, am I? No, I don't think you're off at all. I think the other big thing that you alluded to is just the investment in women's tennis from other programs around the country, right? And you, you've named some who have just really, um, you know, increased their focus on athletics, increased their focus on women's sports, um, and tennis being one of those, right? So whether that's building new facilities, the recruiting, the resources, right? There are all these other schools that are coming to the table with a lot else to offer, look, it's becoming extremely competitive and, and Stanford has a lot of roadblocks in their way um, that that make it difficult. Yeah, I just think the era of Stanford, Georgia, UCLA is over. Like it's just, it's no longer three blue bloods and everyone else chasing. I just think this parody we see, obviously 
increased by the five years of high school graduates right now currently competing in college tennis. We just have more good players available for everyone. But certainly, again, this Stanford program is one to monitor because we talk about all the challenges they face. Uh, they may face now in comparison to 10, 15 years ago. I'll tell you what, this is still a really good team coming back to Palo Alto this season. And again, you look at what they were able to accomplish last year, 19-6 and six overall, round of 16 loss. Uh, I, I do think they were playing some of, you know, some of their players that were certainly starting to play better, if not their best tennis, come the end of the season. And with that in mind, we can get into the returner Stanford bring back this year. First player we have to start with, obviously, is Connie Ma. And you look for Connie Ma, which she was able to accomplish last season, 15-5 and five in dual matches, 32-9 and nine overall on the year. NCAA finalist, of course, as well. Connie Ma also 4-2 and two in three set matches uh, throughout the course of last season. I love some of the stats Stanford throws on to their stat sheet as well. But, I mean, you look at some of the wins Connie was able to get. She really only had one rough patch of the season. She really struggled, hit a freshman wall at the start of April, lost four consecutive decisions at the number one spot. But I mean, listen to this murderer's row of a win streak she went on to end the season. She beats Julia Morlay of Arizona State. Then she beats uh, Katamatova, number 76 at UC Santa Barbara, a win over Mattel of UCF. Kessler of Florida, Ewing of USC, Ranchelli NC State, four and four over Fiona Crawley in the semis before the three and two loss to Peyton Stearns, where I just don't think she quite had the strength to deal with the heaviness of that Peyton Stearns forehand. And ultimately, I think that is what in the end just, you could tell in her legs, she didn't quite have it come that NCAA final. But boy, when I look back at Connie Ma's freshman season, I, you know, she won the ITA Northwest Regional, had a really good run at the National Fall Championships, making the quarters last year as well. Hard to imagine a better season from the freshman phenom than what we saw. Yeah, absolutely. You pretty much throw out those four straight losses she had. They all were on the road. They were the end of the regular season. You know, those are those are tough. I would say it was, if anything, it was about not that she doesn't have the power to handle the Peyton Cerns forehand, but she probably ran out of gas uh, in that final. I saw her beat Peyton Cerns in person uh, when they played Texas at Stanford, and she had all the game in the world to handle the Peyton Cerns. Uh, Peyton Stern's power. That was not a good performance from her in the final, but just an incredible performance from her. You know, we talked about this in the Virginia pod, but that match against Emma Navarro Mm. at indoors, I mean, started off strong. So just a really strong debut from her. Someone that is going to be really exciting to follow throughout her career in college tennis. Yeah. I mean, she beat all the big names last year. Selma Ewing senior last year on the job. She beat her twice. You know, she did get a win over Peyton Sturms at home early in the season did beat, you know, a veteran in McCartney Kessler over at Florida as well. And, you know, again, another, or she played Fiona Crawley twice last season, two of my favorite matches. We saw obviously the three setter in the round of 16 at fall match straight sets at the semifinals. Some podcaster may have alluded to that as potentially the best rivalry we have in college tennis over the next couple of seasons individually. Hopefully, we get to see it again. But I guess when you look at Connie, and you know, last season, she ends the year at the NCAA finalist. This is though now we enter the season and there, last year, there was a clear-cut top two, right? It was Emma's world. We were all living in it. And then after that, it was hard to argue anyone but Peyton Stearns was the gal throughout the course yeah. of the 2022 college tennis season. Is Connie on that stratosphere for you entering this year? 
I don't, well, no, right? Okay. Because uh, coming into the season, that stratosphere was eliminated. There was no one left, right? Both Navarro and Stern's term pro was kind of up for grads, right? Fiona Crawley has taken that mantle as someone who who sits there until she gets dethroned. Uh, you look, I think Connie had the opportunity to do that this fall. She didn't, right? She lost to Yepafanova, her teammate, in the fall regionals. She loses to Daria Freeman in just a brutal four-hour match in San Diego. Look, is she one of the top five, top 10 best players in college tennis? Absolutely. Uh, has she entered into the Navarro Stern stratosphere? No. So you're right. I, I wanted to disagree with you and say you're wrong, but the way you framed it is perfect. Right now, no one sits in the Navarro Stern stratosphere, not even Fiona Crawley, who sits there in regards to how I feel about her entering <laughs> this season, no doubt about that. But you need to see a little bit more from her at that number one single yes. spot throughout the course sure. of the year. She hasn't proven it consistently. I'll say this again. Connie lost four matches on the road in April last year. She lost five total dual matches on the season, lost four in a row. If anyone is ready to take the mantle, especially after that four-hour loss to Freeman, where, look, Connie had a million chances in that semifinal match, and she wins that. She goes on to windfall match. Let's say she beats Crawley. Like, it's hard to say a four-hour loss that she had a million chances in is the one reason why she's not the gal entering the season. But if you're asking me, and you sort of alluded to this, like, I agree with you. No one is on that stratosphere because no one had that dominant of a pro fall or was, you know, out the entries the year out inside the top 250 or just ran through undefeated. Well, I guess Fiona did, but I just need to see it a little bit more in the dual match level for her. You're right. Right now, that position is vacant. But who are who's on the short list of two, three players to get that? If Crawley's one and Freeman's two, Connie Ma is no lower, in my opinion, than third on that list right now. I would not have Freeman at two, right? Freeman is like a San Diego yeah, specialist so here. Yeah, I was gonna say. <laughs> uh, and then you know she comes back down to earth during the rest of the year. So Connie is certainly above uh, Daria Freeman in the race, right. in this race. Um, so if, I think you could put her at two. Arguably, there's look at a lot of players we haven't even seen yet, right? Who could come in in the spring and take that mantle? So that's why there's really no one there right now. No, it's certainly fascinating. And look, coming into the season, one could argue Connie Ma was not the even most highly touted freshman on the Stanford roster, right? That could have been Alexandra Yepafanova, who, of course, had all sorts of junior successes prior to coming to Stanford. And last season, put together a damn good freshman year. Might have been the freshman who was the best freshman we didn't talk enough about last season. Because if you're a freshman who goes 20-4 and four in dual match play in a top two singles position... I mean, again, talk about positioning oneself perfectly to make the jump, to make that sophomore surge. And you look for Yepafanova again, 20 and four overall in dual match play, 30 and eight overall in singles on the season. She was eliminated in the NCAA tournament by eventual NCAA champ Peyton Stearns, a really fun five and six match, but a ton of chances in that match. Yeah. And you look for Yepafanova. Here's the thing I'm most impressed by during the dual match season, loses three sets to Chervinsky you know, loses straight sets to Lisa Czar, loses three sets, 10-8 in the third to Aaron Cayetano, and then the 6-3-7-6 loss in the NCAA tournament to Carmen Corley. The only matches she lost last season was against the 
absolute elite of the elite competition. And even looking at the fall, Jay, who the losses were to. Just listen to these losses last year. I apologize, for listeners, that we're getting this in depth. But Ma Cayetano uh, Scriabina of Texas Tech, Chervinsky, Czar, Cayetano, Corley, Stearns. Where's the bad loss, Jay? Where's the bad loss from the freshman? We just spent all this time talking about Connie Ma. She made the NCAA final, but some scholars are arguing, Jay, that Yepafanova had the better season. Well, some scholars would say Yepafanova might have the higher upside of Connie Ma, right? I'll tell you what. I know a scholar who would say that very (laughs) thing. (laughs) You know, I mean, she certainly has the the size, the power, the serve, the forehand – um, so she's going to win so many matches off of that alone, right? It takes an elite caliber player who can really mix things up against Yepafanova to get her out of that rhythm. And you see only so many people can do it. But yeah, she's had an excellent season to have two freshmen at one and two, you know, kind of have these records. It's, it's really impressive, but it's also what we're used to at Stanford when they bring in these highly touted recruits. No, the craziest thing is then, oh, by the way, you thought that those two were good. How about Valencia Shu? Just very quietly, 16 and two in dual match play, 15 and two at the number five spot. She was exceptional last year. And again, you look at who the losses were for uh, in her instance, she loses a, a strange match at UC Santa Barbara, uh, knocked out by Hannah Villa Moeller of Cal as well. But you know, she was third set in that Oklahoma match. Obviously, didn't ultimately finish in the round of 16. But, like, we'll get to Blake. We'll get to all the other auxiliary pieces. But if you're core for Stanford over the next two to three years, and I don't know if they're all going to stay for all four, but over the next two to three years, your core is Ma, Shu, and Yepafanova, Jay. I mean, again, not to beat this term down to a drum, but some scholars have seen the duo uh, trio of Vonder Schulenberg, Montez, and Rodesh as a foundation moving forward and how much success that created for UVA. And like, am I regretting the first five minutes of our Stanford conversation saying the era of Stanford dominance is over after looking at this superstar sophomore class? The answer's not no. (laughs) Yeah, I think... There is one caveat here, and that is that the strength of schedule for Stanford Mm -hmm. is not high. Uh, You know, they did not make indoors last season. They do not play very difficult uh, spring season. I do think there is some padding, let's say, in these records that we don't necessarily see with other teams, particularly last year, given how strange the Pac-12 was with kind of down years for teams like Cal, USC, and UCLA, particularly down the home stretch. So, you know, all excellent players who had excellent years, but I think that that is one caveat. Valencia Shu is someone that you will feel extremely confident about if she's at five and six in that lower of the lineup. Probably not a direct comp to the UVA's top three. Sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, these are three players that you're excited to um Build how, around. Was, how was Shoes Fall? Because obviously Yepafanova, you mentioned it, we made all the big events, played pretty solid. Not maybe not quite as good as last year's fall for her, but yeah. certainly Yepafanova didn't do anything this fall that has you feeling worse about her entering this season. How was Shoe in the fall? Shoe didn't really play this fall, right? Um, she really only played the uh, the regionals at Stanford, where she lost to Katja Weirshim of Cal, which is a fine loss. Um, but other than that, we didn't see much of her. 
Yeah, I, that's that was my concern as well. Is it's just you know you mentioned it. If she's at five, if she's at six, we already saw how much success she can have at that position. The question is, will they be asking her to step up in the lineup this season? And honest to God, the answer to that question may be no, because you look at who else this team brings back. Now we can turn to the upperclassmen veterans who obviously have been around now Stanford for a little bit of time. It starts with the the person I call the poorest woman's Carolina Pliskova. Of course, I'm referring to Angela <laughs> Blake in the kindest way possible. Um, because, by the way, if you're playing three or four singles in college tennis and your comp is Carolina Pliskova, is that a mean thing to say, Jay? You're laughing at me. <laughs> I mean... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Every so often, I need to throw a take to make sure you're still listening. I mean, because it's so accurate on some of the ground strokes, it could not be farther from the truth on the, on the surf. surf. <laughs> <laughs> it's the ground strokes. If you were to ask Angelica Blake and Carolina Pliskova to play a ground stroke game and you gave them each the Rorschach masks so you couldn't see who was who behind the face, you would actually be like, ah, well, I think that one's Pliskova because she's like six foot and Blake's 5'10", but like they're both tall. They both get after that ball from the baseline. It's a little bit flat, but when they're on top of it, Jay, I mean, again, you look for Blake, who's been exceptional in just about every season she's played. Angelica Blake last season, very quietly, just another 20-5 and year at the number three single spot, 28-7 and overall. Like, again, she's the best player in college tennis we never talk about. Yeah, we talked about her briefly when she had her 0-0 win yeah. right over I forget which uh, in, well, the, in the Pac-12 she, final. I apologize. But, she's a I'm a huge cuz I was in Chicago 2020, which I think was either her freshman which might have actually been her freshman year. It would have been her freshman year. And it year, was yeah. like cuz Stanford did not have a great national indoors. They almost lost to Michigan in the round of 16. God knows I'll never forget that match. But Blake in that moment, you could just tell like, okay, she's got it. Like that's the freshman. Her and Natasha Subash, my feelings about the two of them from that tournament have persisted throughout their careers yeah and i mean blake's entire tenure has kind of been um marred with this covid stuff right of the stanford restrictions and so i thought she had a really great season last year i mean she (laughs) the pliskova ground stroke just became a lot more consistent right she would be happy to go 10 15 20 ball rallies with you down the home stretch she looked unbeatable at number three until she was beaten by Ivana Corley in that Oklahoma match, which I thought was a surprise loss for her. Um, And she's continued that form into the fall. So she made the finals of regional, you know, she, her, you know, two other losses were, you know, Maddie Sieg and Kimmy Hance. So, um, (laughs) you know, she's, she's continuing to play really well and she will absolutely be a huge component of this team. And this is why, as we get to number six on the roster, again, I could argue under most seasons, Stanford would be the unequivocal number one preseason favorite because of how many proven commodities they have throughout the lineup, Jay. Like, you don't feel like there's going to be any serious regression. 15-5 and five from Ma, if she plays number one again, that feels very accomplishable. Yepifanova, 20-4 and four at number two a year later, that feels very accomplishable. Blake, 20-5 and five at three. Again, 
Yes, there might be a drop off a match here, a match there, but everything feels like that's within the realm of possibility. We mentioned Shu, the 15-2 record at five. They also bring back their senior leader, fifth year, Sarah Choi, who went 21-4 at the number six position. Now, anyone who's watched Sarah Choi play, no one's going to accuse her of being a power tennis player, right? But to bring back the fifth year at the number six single spot, Jay, like, uh, we'll get to the new additions in a second. A lot of veteran pieces on this team. Yeah, and Sarah Choi is the only player who was on that 2019 NCAA uh, win. She did play in that tournament as well. She looked actually very good last season. It's funny you call her not a power player. Tell you what, she hits a much harder ball than Valencia Shu up at number five. Sure. So, you know, she can, she can still uh, hit from the ground. But, yeah, I mean... Look, the key thing for her, she's going to be a, a grad transfer. I mean, not a grad transfer, a fifth year. I don't have any doubts about that. Um, I know I've mentioned that in some of the other pods, but, you know, the consistency there of just, hey, you're just back for another year. She clearly wants to end her tenure with a title. So if you keep her at six down there, that record feels very repeatable. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. I think she's getting a master's in community health and prevention research. I'm just going to throw this out there. Doesn't sound easy. Like that is not a fun grad program. <laughs> Certainly yeah. uh, one imagines at Stanford. And so again, those are all the pieces we know extraordinarily well. Now for what it's worth, obviously they bring back India Houghton who played in the middle of the lineup last year. She went nine and eight at the number four spot. Uh, they bring back Nicole Mossmer who did not play quite frequently, but still on the lineup, uh, excuse me, on the roster. So it's worth mentioning I don't and Anna Geller. And Anna Geller, last piece, who did not play much last season, if memory well, serves she me. She played correct. more than Mossmer. Yeah, that's true. Thank you. And thus, needed to be mentioned. So shout out to you, Jay. Any final thoughts on the three? I guess, of those three players, because I want to get into the freshmen uh, shortly, of those three, who do you think is most likely to contribute? Or will be the biggest of the contributors? Of the three freshmen? No, of Geller, Houghton, and Mossmer. Because I think the other five, like, yes, Geller and Houghton, when they played, played above Choi or Shu. Uh-huh. But, like, it, I feel like this is very much a Tim Siebert situation where, like, if we're pulling, that's who we're pulling this year. Yeah, I mean, I was surprised that that was not challenged throughout <clears throat> the course of the year. It was a very surprising. Um, I, I think when we get to the newcomers here, I think it's a direct line replacement with um, you know having who they had at number four. Well, let's get to those newcomers then because they bring in a couple of freshmen to supplement this roster. Now, shout out to the Jews. Has to be said, as always, Alexis Blokina lived my fantasy of getting to go play the Maccabi Games in Israel, the senior games as a two-time junior gold medalist. I was like, ah. Oh. You'd think I'd get the honorary invite. Or the real thing that makes me upset, Jay, is I think they had streaming for the tennis. And all I'm saying is, who is more qualified not to play the event, but to stream the Maccabi game tennis portion of this you know tournament than a two-time Maccabi Jewish winning tennis commentator? Um, and they had, had on-site hosts as well. 
This is what, I, unless it was Aaron Crickstein himself, that job belonged to me. <laughs> so, like, that's all I'm saying. But no, Alexis Blokina, blue chip recruit, superstar to bring in, obviously, to this program, one of many superstars they have brought in on the years. And for what it's worth, she was number 25. ITF Junior has been a top 800 WTA player in the world. 586 right now. Yeah, played all the junior slams, has all those sorts of experiences. She's the direct line replacement, correct? Yeah, I think, I mean, now I'm not saying she'll play four, but I'm saying you take out uh, India Houghton from four and you put in Blockina and there's her six. Yeah, and do you, I mean, again, what did we see from her in the fall from an, a UTR perspective, a level perspective? Do you see her as a top three sort of player right away or do you think it'll be a slow work her way up the lineup? Well, from a UTR perspective, she's number two on that on their roster. Team? Behind who, Ma or Yepifanova? Connie Ma at 11.2. Blockina at 10.96, Blake at 10.94. And then you have so, to over what, 10.8? 10.89. So what, are they fourth in overall UTR, power six? Yeah, so I should have mentioned that at the top. They are tied for fifth. No actually, way! Who's above them other than North Carolina Pepperdine? They're ranked fifth. They're .01 above Texas. Okay. So they're just above Texas. Hold on, I'll Thanks. pull it for you. That's crazy to me. Like, because when I think about so, this team, especially up top, I'm like, oh my goodness. Yeah. Do you want me to? Can I just guess oh. them real quick? North Carolina okay. one. Yeah. Pepperdine two. No. No. Someone else. Pepperdine three. Du- no, not Duke two. Duke's 11. Uh, we went through it already. Who am I blanking? It's going to be a top 10 team. It's not Oklahoma. They're not going to be that high by UTR. Um, Number two by, oh, is it UGA? No, because of some of the ones they bring in. Um, number two by UTR must be NC State. Yes. Okay, NC State two. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah, just give it to me. Schneider's twelve point one four. Oh yeah, that's uh, a joke. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay, Fair UNC, enough. North Carolina State, Pepperdine, Georgia, and then Stanford. Okay. Yeah, I mean, we are number six in our preseason rankings. There we that go. Feels I mean, about yeah. right. This Stanford team does have that sort of talent. What did Blokina do this fall? She was semis of her regional? She was semis of her regional. It was an all-Stanford regional. She lost to Blake. She was 8-1 and one this fall. That was her <laughs> one loss. Um, yeah. So, you know, uh, Connie Ma, Yepifanova, Angelica Blake, uh, Blokina, they're all top 50 in the rankings after their fall. The most... The biggest result for her this fall was making the quarterfinals of the 80K in Tyler, where she beats, you know, former Pepperdine Wave Ashley Leahy. She beats top 50 Madison Brengel before ultimately losing to um, Sophia Kenyon in the quarterfinals there. I mean, if you're not going to talk about her Maccabi results as her best result of the summer, that's fine. We can end the show now. Jay, I said but... fall. Yeah. But yeah. She did win the, the Maccabi event. I believe okay. she beat Vivian yeah. Navrutsky in the final there, right? Yeah, okay. That's a, okay. You're forgiven because you knew who she beat in the final as well. Yeah, it's a ridiculous addition. I mean, again, it's the sort of superstar impact freshman you typically see slot up into a top three of a lineup, and Stanford has the luxury that they don't need that right away. Now, you know, again, she's not the only freshman they add to the roster. Do you have anything on Emma Sun for me? She's, you know, a top 10 recruit by tennis recruiting. She was kind of getting better and better in her high school career. I'm not sure she'll factor in immediately. She didn't play a ton in the fall. Um but, you know, she's a, a great addition to the team. Yeah, it's just to, to round out the depth, right? You feel like this team yeah. does have some options at 7, at 8. Certainly, you feel like Houghton in a pinch, right? If Houghton's coming in and playing 6, you feel pretty good about that? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, she was you know batting 500 at four, so you'd like to move her down. But you know, if she competes with you know Valencia Shu, Sarah Choi at that four, five, five, six, seven spot, right? You know, iron sharpens iron down there. Who's the eight? In your, who's eight by UTR? I'm just curious because sometimes you know you never want to say they're one injury. You know, one injury now you're riding the six players, especially as we get closer and closer to the top of the top ten. Well, it's funny you mention that because Stanford had to do that in the Pac-12 exactly. um, final. They only took six players there because of injury. Um, so by UTR, you, I mentioned Yepa Finova four, Sarah Choi fifth, Valencia Shu six. So those are your top six. Houghton is um, seventh there, and then Anna Geller is eight. Okay, so when you look at this team then, Jay, we've run through the roster and obviously pretty difficult for us to get into the doubles combinations, all these different things uh, until we know them exactly. That said, when you look at these team strengths, how would you enunciate it? I think it's their top four. I think number four in particular, we've talked about specific like locks. I like Sanford's four over almost any other team. I think the top four are extremely clear. And to me, the five and six are very clear. I think you're going to have... Connie Ma, Yepifanova, Blake, and Blockina in your top four. I would say start the season, <clears throat> Blockina could play four. I think the big question is how high does she move up? I think there is a world where she ultimately plays two for this team, given the weapons that she has, her, you know, her her lefty forehand. So that's pretty straightforward to me. And then I think you keep Shu and Choi at five and six. Um, I think that's it's pretty straightforward. This team is really good. If I were to say the strengths, it's that I really don't have any questions about their starting lineup. Like, so is if what's your biggest question about their uh, their starting six? If if it's the uh, so, four spot with Blokina, like, can a freshman no, be their biggest yes. strength and their yeah. weakness? That's what I'm asking. Well, it's not. That's not my. I have three open questions. The okay. first is how high does Blokina move up? Okay. Because I think if you start her at four and she moves up, she could be playing two essentially. How much does she click? I think she's already proven she will click. It's just a question of if she is excelling at that number two spot, then if you have someone like a Blake or Yepifanova at three and four, that's going to be really tough to beat. That's a joke. If you have that sort of power, and by the way, just to add to supplement what you said, because I very much agree with your strength argument, the, the strength of this team is how powerful they are at the number two, three, and four spots. Just from a yeah. matchup perspective, absolute nightmares because there will just be some players who with all due respect and for the record I would fall into this camp of player who I'm just not athletic enough to hang with those sorts of weapons and when you yep. have one of Blake Yepifanova or Blokina at four I'm sorry like outside of the North Carolina four singles and maybe the you know I guess the top five teams we'll get to over the course of the next two and a half weeks folks there's just like when they play the the meat and potatoes of their schedule, there's just going to be a lot of we are killing everyone two through four. Yeah. You know, and particularly three and four, I would say. Yeah. Right. I think that these those the thing is, is that I don't those know, three, man. even two, they've got blue chips. Well, I mean, that that bar is not that high for some of these teams. Right. To have sure. a blue chip at two. But I just think it's the fact that. Yepifanova, Blake, Blockina are all very similar level right now. Um, and that really, really helps. And then you have Shu and Choi, I think, at a similar level. So there's not much drop-off between those spots. I think my second big question is just, can Shu and Choi replicate last mm -hmm. season's record? You know, we haven't seen much from them in the fall. So that's kind of an open question moving in. And then lastly, and I know we kind of skip over this, but 
doubles has just always been a weakness for for Stanford. You know, Blake and Ma are decent number one. Outside of that, they really struggled. You know, Blockina made the U.S. Open Junior semifinal with UVA's Annabelle Schuess, who figures she will absolutely factor in to that doubles lineup. So they just need to find three pairs because if they can take doubles, this is just a tough team to find um, four singles points against. 12-4 and four at the number one spot last year, 14-9 and nine at the number two spot. I see eight and 11-8 and eight at the number three spot. Yeah, that's... It's not great. Like yeah. it, it's fine. Although the last time they lost the doubles point won a match last year, April twenty second, they lost the doubles against UCLA. Won the sing, uh, won the match. Last time they won the doubles, lost the match. Kickoff weekend when they beat Virginia in doubles, ultimately lost that match four three. You're right though. I mean, here's the thing: if you have Yepa Finova, Blake, the serve is an issue. But like Yepa Finova, Blokina as individual pieces, and then that duo of Blake and Ma, where you just feel like the totality of tennis is really, really good at that number one spot. There are enough pieces there. If this team can win two-thirds of their doubles, Jay, you feel like now, I mean, how do you find four singles wins against them? Yeah, exactly. It's just, there's just not a lot of doubles players on this roster. Um, In But they have two players over 5'10". Like, Blake and Yepifanova, the problem is the Blake serve. Like, you're right. Yeah. The the Blake serve and just the um the the serve and the the power of of yeah. Shu and Sarah Choi. I mean, so you feel like you have three players who should be very strong in doubles, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Connie Ma, Yepa Finova, and Blockina. Find try and find pairs around those. Um, they were definitely a player short last year. Yeah, and so that will be the key thing for them to watch. Of course, you alluded to the schedule a little bit earlier. They will have some time to sort of work through the schedule and find the best version of themselves. Of course, you look for Stanford at the kickoff weekend. It's an interesting kickoff weekend on paper in the fact that you have Florida State coming to town. You have Arkansas coming to town. You obviously kick things off with, I thought, a really frisky Kansas State team last yeah. year. We don't, you know, we don't have to relitigate the bottom of the Big 12 and how frisky it was throughout the course of the year. I don't want to see even the bottom. Just uh, bottom. I think they made the semifinals yeah, of the Big exactly. 12 tournament. I just, just in general, I meant every one of those Big 12 teams was sneaky solid last season. So... It's not a cakewalk of a kickoff weekend. You expect Florida State to bounce back after they played last year seemingly with three players on the <laughs> roster almost all year long. And then again, Coach Sanchez-Quintanar, I'm, I'm not betting against her on uh, what she's building down in Arkansas. That said, outside you know, of that kickoff weekend of the ITA kickoff event, I mean, they've got Pepperdine right before the team indoors coming to yep. Stanford on February 3rd. They go to Texas, the second half of the home-and-home home they played last year. After that, you know, San Diego comes to town, but it's pretty much just the Pac-12 schedule where it's worth noting they are at UCLA, at USC, Saturday, March 25th, Sunday, March 26th. That is a heck of a weekend for the Stanford Cardinal, but I mean, outside of that, Jay, you alluded to it earlier. I don't love this schedule. Yeah, and the schedule has been like this for years at this yeah. point. You know, it's the same schedule they played last year. And this is sort of one of those other examples of this is something that is very much in their control, right? They cannot, you know, uh, Coach Farood cannot um, immediately decide to take January players. That's something you work through the administration. But, like, the schedule is just too weak. And the problem is you cannot rely on the Pac-12 be having 
two, three top 10 teams every year, because when they don't, you're scrapping and clawing to be in that kind of top 10 range. Right. And last season, when you don't make indoors, which Stanford didn't last year, they were on the outside end of the top 16. Now in years past, when we don't have the super regional, that at least gets you to the final site. We've seen many a Stanford teams upset a number one ranked Florida, a number one ranked North <laughs> Carolina in those round of 16 matches. Now you got to go do it on the road. And this schedule just does not cut it to ensure that you are a top eight seed. It's really well said. It's just like now that the Super Regional exists, I mean, we saw last year, you talked about that Stanford team maybe not being particularly ready for that environment. Well, it's twofold. And I meant to say this at the time. Shout out to what the Sooners had in Norman on that day. was an unbelievable, one of the best environments we saw of the entire season. That said, at Texas, at USC, at UCLA, and the National Indoor Weekend. Those are really the six days Stanford has to prepare for the Super Regional. And if they go four and two or five and one in those six days of tennis, they'll be hosting that Super Regional in Palo Alto. Three and three, which, by the way, is not unreasonable to expect from Stanford to accomplish a loss at Texas, losing one of at UCLA and at USC. And then let's be honest, they've never been the best indoor team. So you can assume two and one at best at the national indoors. They have to probably go at least four and two or better, right? In those six big matches. And there's just no guarantee they will. That's, I mean, I literally have that written down. I was like, they have (laughs) to do well at indoors. And this is a team that starts five of their six, what I think will be their starters are from California or Florida, right? This isn't a school that has indoor courts. They have one indoor court, you know, outside of Valencia shoe. I mean, who's playing a lot of indoor tennis on this team? Not many, Mm -hmm. right? So to put all your eggs in this basket, it's just really, really challenging. And you just need more opportunities for these players to be in those environments. If you want to have them do well down the home stretch, particularly when you've lost that institutional pass down knowledge of players who have been there before. A hundred percent. You know, Michaela Gordon's not walking through that door this year, or no. some of the players have been able to just seemingly bring out for the NCAA tournament, have that full lineup ready to rock and roll. Similarly, you know, Pepperdine can lose to Stanford in Palo Alto and they'll be fine. Like there's a world where Stanford has half the losses that Pepperdine does coming out of the regular season. But because Pepperdine played such a significantly tougher schedule, it'll be Pepperdine, not Stanford as the top eight seed. Look, with all that said, Why are we going as far in depth on this team as we do? Because I do think, Jay, and we've already alluded to this, this team is firmly in the national championship conversation. It does not take much of a stretch of the imagination to see Shu and Choi competing and continuing the success levels they had last season at the bottom of the lineup. You could absolutely see a world where two of the four of Ma, Yepafanova, Blokina, Blake are top 20 players for the duration of the season and are ripping off those 18-4, and 19-5 type seasons, regardless of where they're playing in the top four of the lineup. So with all that said, time to make some predictions. Let's start with the projected lineup. Give me the singles lineup come the NCAA tournament. Do we see some changes? Oof. So the big question is, I just don't know about the team chemistry aspect of it and how okay. high up Blockina can go. I'll go in May. I'll go Ma, Yepafanova, Blockina, Blake, Shu, and Choi. 
The idea of Angelica Blake at four singles. That might be the most. That's the new Crawley. Like, that might be the new MVP, the lock of locks we see potentially. Outside of the fact that Crawley might be playing four again for UNC <laughs> this year. So, you know what I mean, too, uh, with a grain of salt. All right, how's this team do at the National Indoors? <laughs> two and one, one and two? I think it's one and two. I mean, it's so dependent on these draws. Yeah. I think I have half the teams going two and one at this point. And so it's like uh, someone's, I, then the, uh, you know, again, I'm trying to, all due respect to Washington, like, man, it's going to be really, Washington was, again, if they were hosting last year and they were at the National Indoors last year, so perhaps then life could have been even that much more fun. But Yeah, but Stanford's not getting Washington in the first round. Yeah, exactly. But, but the, could they both be 0-2 come Sunday? Yeah, I think Stanford could. I think Stanford's doubles could be a mess mm-hmm. at at indoors. You know, uh, they're just not. But here's the the flip side: is this team is experienced. Like again, five of the six players have played together before. There's also yeah. a world where this team looks at the calendar and says, "Hey, do you guys want to go to Oklahoma again? You don't. Well, then we really need to go one and two, uh, two and one at this national indoors." And I think there will be a sense of that from this team in a way. Maybe some of these untested groups haven't quite been through that that grind together at a big event like this. That said, what I'm looking right now, in my head, I'm thinking like Duke's got the veterans to make a semifinal run. Stanford's got the veterans to make a semifinal run. North Carolina doesn't lose at the indoor event, period. Did you watch what Oklahoma did last year? You're going to bet against NC State and the system. And like the only thing that wouldn't shock me after seeing it last year is if Texas struggles at the national indoors because they've earned the benefit of the doubt to be like, (laughs) doesn't matter for you guys. We'll see you come May. Yeah. I'm going to say two and one at the indoors because I think they, I, I think this team will recognize how significant that indoors is for them and understand like, hey, we also got to send a little bit of a message that this Stanford team is like the Stanford teams of old and we're not going anywhere anytime soon. Pac-12, do they win it? Yeah, I think they do win the Pac-12. Both? Yes. Yeah, regular season and uh, tournament. Yes. I think they do. Did I say USC was going to win one of them on the number 10 pod? I think – I yeah, maybe I said the USC. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, I just want to stay consistent. <laughs> that's all. All right. Well, we'll um, this is what I'm feeling in the moment, so we go with it. Amen. Welcome to how this works, my friend. People are like, <laughs> you contradicted yourself. I'm like, it checks out. <laughs> Let me tell you, if you think I remembered what I said yesterday. Um, all right, NCAA tournament, are they a top eight seed? No. Oof. I'm going to say yes because they're going to do what they need to do at the indoors and they're going to they're going to lose at Texas but they're going to they're going to go undefeated in Pac-12 play in the regular season and that's going to be their saving grace. And so I'm going to say yes but I don't feel great about it and that leads us to the ultimate prediction. NCAA tournament, Jay. I said I'm having our top 8 all go to at least the quarterfinals. What say you about number 6 Stanford? Well, I'm going to say they're not a top eight seed, but that they do go on the road and get the win. So I think that this is a quarterfinal team. Okay. I like that. No further, though. I don't think so. I think this is another one step deeper than they're coming back from the lowest of lows in the round of 32 and 2021, and they're working their way up. Because I do think, while you kind of figure out what you want to do here, I do think this is a Stanford team. It's one year away. 
because yeah. next year you basically return everyone on this roster except for Sarah Choi. I don't know if Angelica Blake is coming back for her fifth year, but she could. And then you bring in Eliana Just real Yu. quick, Angelica, if you're hearing this, come back. Like, come on. You, you're not leaving Stanford without a championship. Just Well, that's the thing. She probably your, hasn't decided. Yeah, and I'll find you a grad program, okay? We'll talk to my league people, but we need you back at Stanford one more year. I, I just I need to see you go on the victory run. But anyways, carry on. Well, because next year is when they, you know, they bring in Eliana Yu, the yes. girls 18s hardcourt uh, champion this year, and Catherine Hugh, top five in her class right now. So if Angelica Blake comes back, their top five comes back plus, you know, the three of the, the five, ten best recruits in the country. Exactly. I was going to say like the Lerner Chen comp. In, yeah, they're uh, the new North Carolina next year if everyone comes back. Yeah. So uh, this is the year to kind of build those build those foundations. <laughs> Not that the Stanford team needs a foundation to build I, on. but <laughs> I just you know. like we've come full circle here because at the beginning of the podcast is the run for Stanford over is the blue. Are they no longer the bluest of the blue bloods? And it's like, well, actually, if you look at their recruiting class next year, they might still be the bluest of the blue bloods because it's still freaking Stanford tennis. Yep. And that's why when I look at this, Jay, it's why I'm it's just like this team is really good. And you're right. It's very easy to look at them and say they're a year away. I think they go one of two ways. I think they either go the full Texas 2021 route where it's just like we're winning everything. It's all broken our way. Like we are just on this run, this miracle run. Or it could go Texas 2022 where there's just like some sort of injury and some sort of thing. Maybe it's doubles. Maybe it's just not finding the exact spot for everyone until very late in the season where it's just like a weird year where they clearly underperform where the the whole is less than the sum of the parts. And I think it goes extreme one way or the other. And I really want to say this team gets to the semis. But then I have to cut out two of our top four teams from the semis. And I just don't know who I would cut out. So I'm going to say the quarterfinals, but I don't like quarterfinals. it. Quarterfinals. I was going to say, both of those Texas teams won the NCAAs, though. I know. No, no, sorry. I meant the Texas men. Um, oh, Texas yeah, men. Yeah, okay. sorry. I should have clarified there. I meant the, the, the Texas men, not the Texas women. Um, God. So we both had Duke to the semifinals, right? Yeah. Oh, so I already have to eliminate a top four team. Jeez Louise. Everyone is really good. Like really, 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 really good this year. Yeah. But you said it. Year away. I'll make up for my prediction, Stanford fans, in 2024. I'll say this now. They're my favorite to win the 2024 national title. I'll do respect to whomever UNC ultimately ends up bringing in this year. They'll get that second semester of Sviantec in the end. Yeah, Stanford quarters. But I don't feel good about it, Jay. I don't feel good about it at all because never bet against Stanford at the NCAA tournament, right? Isn't that the number one lesson in, in if you're a fan of women's college tennis? Yeah, pre-COVID. Yeah, I just uh, – oh, man. I don't feel good about it. I don't feel good about any of these predictions, Jay. That's why I'm trying to slowly get us out of the prediction business. But with all of that said, that's your look at number six, Stanford. We both have the Cardinal going to the quarterfinals, ultimately capturing additional Pac-12 title for the program. And again, there is no denying this team has all the talent to make another deep run in 2023. With that said, Jay, 
Any final thoughts before we wrap today's show? I feel like as we go on, these shows, by the way, listeners, are going to get longer because now we just have more people to talk about, more data points to talk about, more speculating to do. I, I don't know, Jay. I, I guess I offer you the final points. Uh, final well, I don't know. We're, we're just coming off that Pepperdine pod. We only had six <laughs> players to talk about. So, uh, you know, it ebbs and it flows. I think it it depends on the day, depends on the news. Um, but no, I mean, look, this is a team that I'll be closest to this season, right? I'll be able to watch most of their matches. So looking forward to that on the ground reporting. Uh, but yeah, look, uh, I think the women's teams this year, no shade to the men. There's just an X factor about a lot of these women's teams that I think is missing on the men's side. So I'm super excited about this season. Can I give you one more grossly irresponsible tangent before we go? Sure. Coach Farood, Coach Sampras Webster uh, retired the same season. Which job do you rather have, Stanford or UCLA? Uh, I I think Stanford. Okay. I, uh, yeah. I think I say UCLA mm-hmm. just because I know what they're doing Power 5 conference-wise. I know they're going to the Big Ten. I know they're getting that cash in. I know UCLA football with Chip Kelly, the way things are going. Hopefully, the Rose Bowl starts delivering better money. I know right now the athletic department at UCLA is in a bit of a sticky spot. Yeah. I would lean UCLA. It's a little closer to Indian Wells. You see more famous people on the grounds there hitting on the courts. I mean, those courts are freaking gorgeous. But Stanford's the job, right? It's really just like, hmm, which one does does Audra Cohen fit better at? (laughs) 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 Look, I know she has family in LA, so she would probably um, be a SoCal person. Jewish people belong at UCLA. I can speak for Audra in this instance, (laughs) but carry on. Yes, that that fits. Um, Look, but Stanford is not a job for everybody, right? And many coaches would actually not want that job just given some of the stuff that we talked about in the beginning of this show that UCLA probably doesn't have as much of right particularly mm-hmm. with the Big 10 and then more resources and so look very different conversations um but both both very storied programs and I that's not an unreasonable question right yeah. um I don't know how much longer coach Farood is going to coach uh likewise for coach uh Sampras Webster and by the way, Frankie Brennan, the assistant associate head coach, however you want to say it for Stanford, he's next in line, right? Yeah, like, exactly. This is it's it's not apples and no oranges. One. Yeah, it's yeah. not exactly. It's not the same comparison because and by the way, Frankie's earned that job. Like, you know who deserves to have a, a time at the at the helm? A guy who's been there twenty six, I want to say, total seasons overall for Frankie at that point. It's it's somewhere around there. Maybe this is twenty seven this year, but yeah. I mean you hear room all right, if I threw Georgia into that mix power rank the three very quickly and then we'll go because Jeff's not not young (laughs) I love you Jeff I love you Jeff Wallace don't get mad at me I'm just saying but I think it's UCLA that's the most interesting one because there's not as clear heir apparent at Stanford there is a clearer heir apparent at Stanford and and Georgia I would argue it's Drake at uh it's Drake yeah right exactly it's a very good former you know UGA All-American you know so Current UCLA assistant, one. by the way. Yeah. Current, yep, exactly. Probably the associate head coach, I would yeah. assume. Um, the UCLA one is one that has, has a lot of more intrigue. The conference realignment changes, the money flowing in, the lack of air apparent, like just as interesting. Yeah, it's it is fascinating. These are the things I 
We enjoy again. 2018, Alex J. You, you're in my head of what what are the segments 2018 Alex would do, and that would be one I would be all over. So certainly just a little fun storyline, I suppose, for everyone who made it to the 81st minute of oh our gosh. number six Stanford <laughs> preview. But with all of that said, obviously, shout out to you, Jay. Uh, appreciate you coming on. As always, I will see you again on Wednesday night, an episode on Thursday, of course, for all of our listeners. And just a reminder to all of you, we still have five women's top 10 teams to preview, six men's top 10 teams to preview. We will be breaking down a new team every Tuesday through Friday, 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 or Friday is how you say it in English, here on this show through the start of the 2023 college tennis season. As we know, it's our job to prepare all of you college tennis fans for all of the action. Of course, the other reason we're able to do that, the work of our super producer, Daniel Westoff, who as always has a f- of an editing job to do day in, day out. With all of that said, Jay, no ad, no problem blog, no ad, no problem podcast. Anything else we should expect from you on those channels this week? No, you remember you keep me busy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> No, so I don't think anything this week. Um, but that's it for me. I definitely, if you know, if you're still listening, now go listen to our uh, NCAA How Do We Get College Tennis on TV podcast. That was the newest episode. Guess what? It's it's holiday time. People are trying to ditch their families, hit the workout room whenever possible. No better chance uh, than those to perhaps listen to the podcast. But with all that said, then for. The fantastic John J. Parsons, our super producer, Daniel Westhoff, and all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. Jay, what do we tell our listeners? Hey, great shot. And we will see you all tomorrow. Thank you as always, my friend. 